0: If you have a minute In a day gone wrong You still have enough time When a day seems like a
1: the American Exception podcast. I'm Aaron Good, and today I am talking again with our friend James DiEginio. One of the most respected researchers and writers on the political assassinations of the 1960s, Jim DiEginio is the author of two books, Destiny Betrayed and The JFK Assassination, The Evidence Today. He is also the co-author of The Assassinations, and he co-edited Probe Magazine from 1993 to 2000. As part of his indefatigable pursuit of JFK justice, DiGenio has made regular appearances on Lino Sanic's Black Op Radio podcast for more than a decade. We're going to be talking about two of Jim's recent articles, The Mystery of Kennedy's Brain Deepens and Hoover vs. King, the ARRB documents. Check out the show notes for links to these articles. Yeah. By you. Jim DiEginio, thanks for joining us again. Good to be here, Aaron. So you've been working, as you always do, on the Kennedy case and the other political assassinations of the 60s, but especially JFK. And uh, we're going to talk today about a couple of articles and r- related issues that you've written recently. The first one uh, is on Kennedy's brain, and the second one is on... The Kennedys and uh, and and who really Hoover and Martin Luther King, but uh, deals with the Kennedy administration a lot as well. So let's talk about this brain article first, because I think this issue is something that came to the public, widespread public attention, like a lot of other things in this case, with Oliver Stone's movie. And at the end, when Kevin Costner mentions to in his uh, closing arguments that the president's brain has been lost and we can't look at it, can you? Uh, Give us, Can you give us a rundown, historically, of how this, uh, th- this story—basically, what is this story? How did this happen? What do we know? What do we not know about it? Where does it stand today? Uh, and then what does your new article reveal? We can get to that later. But maybe just the generic story of his brain first.
2: In our film, JFK Revisited, and in the uh, four-hour version, JFK Destiny Betrayed. We spent some time on this issue because I've come to believe, like I wrote at the end of the article, which, by the way, is at kennedysandking.com, which is, which is the website that I edit and publish. At the end of the article, I say that Kennedy's brain is like a searchlight through the fog guiding us to what really happened to JFK. So let me sketch in some of the background of of this issue. The fatal shot to Kennedy was obviously to his skull. The night of the autopsy,
0: they don't weigh Kennedy's brain, which is standard operating procedure. But for whatever reason,
2: they didn't weigh his brain. The first recorded... And by
1: the way, that's standard operating procedure, but it would be extra... Important when the cause of death is gunshot wounds to the the brain.
2: Absolutely correct. Now, there is a document called the Supplementary Autopsy Report. To my knowledge, that's the first time that the weight of Kennedy's brain is recorded. And in that Supplementary Autopsy Report, the weight of the brain comes in at 1,500 grams. Now, why is that unusual? because that's above (laughs) the average okay the uh, the uh, the average weight of a human brain is 1350 grams Kennedy's comes in at 150 grams above that how can that possibly be because there's so much evidence you know visual certifiable evidence that this cannot be true there's There's the Z313, okay, the explosion of Kennedy's brain in the Zapruder film, where you see this huge, tall jet of blood and tissue going up into the air. There's the pictures of the back of the car, which is caked with blood and tissue, you know, in the back. There's Jackie Kennedy's suit, okay, all right. There's Jackie Kennedy going out the back of the car to re- try and get a piece of Kennedy's brain which had flown out the back of the car and which she actually gave to one of the doctors at Parkland Hospital when she got there. There's the two motorcyclists on the left side of Kennedy behind him. One of them ended up with a hunk of brain in his mouth. He said it hit him so hard that he thought he was hit by a bullet. So with all this evidence... (laughs) that Kennedy's brain was somewhat decimated how the heck could come in at 1,500 grams. And by the way, I haven't even mentioned the eyewitness testimony of so many people at Parkland and Bethesda. Parkland was the emergency room that Kennedy first went to. Bethesda Naval Center is the hospital that the autopsy was done at in which so many witnesses said there was a significant part of Kennedy's brain that was missing. I think there's something like 12 witnesses, including the two pathologists, Humes and Boswell, and also, for example, Dr. Carrico at at, uh, Parkland Hospital. So how the heck could Kennedy's brain weigh above the norm?
1: And there's Man. Jackie. There's Jackie getting onto the climbing onto the trunk, which right. would make zero sense if he's shot from behind.
2: Right. All right. So now, now, here comes a very, very interesting further fact. As I said, there was a supplementary autopsy made. On that autopsy sheet. There's a handwritten date. The rest of it is all typed up. There's a handwritten date that says 12-6. Now, was this supplementary autopsy made on 12-6? We don't know because it's a handwritten date and there's only one signature on it, Jim Humes. But guess what? In that document, it says... No dissection was done in order to preserve the specimen. One of the most memorable parts of Oliver's film is when Cyril Weck comments on this. He says, preserve the specimen? Preserve the specimen for what? Are you going to put it in a museum? Is Jackie Kennedy going to put it on her mantelpiece? Preserve the specimen for what? Okay. Okay. Because, as many doctors, including Dr. Lee said, you cannot figure out a trajectory of a bullet through a brain unless you dissect the brain. There's two ways to do this. There's what they call a bread loaf type, where you cut it like a loaf of bread, and there's a pie cut, where you cut it like a pie with a center cut outward. If you don't do that, then you don't know what a trajectory would be through the brain. Okay? So in other words, they don't weigh Kennedy's brain at the autopsy, then they don't dissect Kennedy's brain at the supplemental autopsy.
1: And you yeah, that's have a, that's a, a perfunctory thing, right? I mean, don't yes. they do that for gun any gunshot victim to the head, they would do that, right? Mm-hmm.
2: Now, here comes another problem which directly relates to the article I wrote, uh, which I think is called The Mystery of Kennedy's Brain Deepens at Kennedy's and King. The official story says that Humes testified, Jim Humes was the chief pathologist on the autopsy team, that he gave everything to Berkeley. Berkeley was Kennedy's personal physician. Berkeley is the only doctor who was both at Parkland and at Bethesda.
0: And the story was that they wanted to bury the brain with the body.
2: Well, here's my question. If they wanted to bury the brain with the body and the funeral is, I think, the 24th, okay, or the twenty fifth what is Humes looking at when he's doing the supplementary autopsy <laughs>
1: okay it's so like they he, don't they don't bury a brain with a body normally right I mean normally this that they like take those organs out for a, a mortician that's like well, what see, they, this that's is, like this, what they do right I mean that's is, a
2: weird see this is why a lot of people have a problem with George Berkeley. Was it really necessary for him to bury the brain with the body? And was he simply not aware that there's going to be this supplementary autopsy approximately 10 or 11 days later? How could he not have been aware of it? So now you begin to see why there's this question about what really happened to Kennedy's brain. Because many people, and this is why we had a neurologist on the program, Michael Chesser, from Little Rock, Arkansas. And this, this is one of the questions we asked him, is it credible to you that Kennedy's brain could have weighed 1,500 grams? Okay. And he said, no, it's, 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 it's not credible. This is a neurologist saying this. All right. So The ARB got on to a guy named James Mastavito, who was part of the Secret Service. Mastavito was a Secret Service agent for approximately 20 years, from about, I believe, 1958 to 1978. He was part of the White House detail from, I believe, uh, 61 to 62. He got transferred to a station, I think Charleston, South Carolina, in 1963. But then he was restationed back to Washington at Secret Service headquarters uh, at the end of 1963. One of his jobs was to reorganize the file on JFK with the Secret Service. He said that when he first got the file, it was five or six file cabinets there. And his job was to winnow it out. Well, he sure as heck did that because he got it down to one file cabinet, one five drawer file cabinet. And he was questioned about this by Robert Blakey during the House Select Committee on Assassinations because Blakey said there were certain documents in there that he was looking for that were gone. And Mastrovito, just like all these other hierarchical guys, passed up the buck and said, well, that's what James Rowley told me to do. But Joan Zimmerman, who was conducting the interview for the ARB, said that it was really Mastrovito who decided what was going to stay and what was going to go. Joan asked Mastrovito, did you handle any artifacts? And this is the question that led to this next reply. And he said, yes, I did. One of them was a piece of Kennedy's brain. It was in a vial. And she said, how did you know it was Kennedy's brain? Because that's what it was labeled, and it was at the AFIP.
1: Yeah, what's a FIP again? Now
2: that's now that this gets into another interesting question. Armed Forces Institute of Pathology is part of the Walter Reed Complex, which is a different complex than Bethesda. One is naval, one is uh, one is the army. All right, and in the article we have the pictures that show that they're two completely different buildings. Okay, and so she asked him. Who gave you the vial? And he said, Walter Young, who was the guy who was on his team at the time, his supervisor. And unfortunately, that guy died the year before Master Vito testified. So this becomes a, a really, really important question. How the heck did Kennedy's brain get to the AFIP? if the autopsy was at Bethesda Naval Center and Berkeley took everything with them to be buried with the body.
0: How the heck did something like this happen?
2: You know? Now, I closed the article because I talked to Dave Montague. Dave Montague was the chief investigator for the ARB. And his name was on this document. And so I wanted to talk to him to ask him, How did you find this guy? How did you find this Master Vito guy? You know, and so he told me that Joan was running the Secret Service investigation. Okay. And she came up with his name. And so he located Master Vito, sent him some documents and had him okay, approval to do an interview. And then at the end of my conversation with Dave,
0: he said, Jeremy Gunn, who was the chief counsel for the ERIB,
2: and Doug Horn, who was a military records analyst, were very troubled by Vito's testimony as to how the heck Kennedy's brain ended up at the AFIP. You know, and he said one of the reasons they were so troubled by this is that there was another witness who said the same thing. This this guy named Ken, I think his name is Vratnik, okay. And they had actually interviewed him a few months
0: before Master Vito came in, and. Britannic said that he knew that Kennedy's brain was in a locked vault at the AFIP
2: because he had seen it. And like Mastrovito, he said the same thing. It was labeled Kennedy's brain. All right. And it's very clear he didn't want to answer any questions because Doug Horn tried to question him about well, what did it look like? How big was it? What was it? And, and he didn't want to answer any questions. And he said, the person who would know about this would be a woman named Joyce Maness, because she could tell you how it got there, what the dimensions were, under what, uh, under what control it was. Okay, because she ran that part of the AFIP. I never saw any interview with Joyce Manners from the ARB. I mean, if, if somebody would have told me that, I would have made it a very high priority to find Joyce Manners because you might be on to what the heck happened to JFK's real brain. That's where the story ends. Okay, that's where the story ends. Where, and and it's, it's incredible. I mean, it's really startling when you think of it, you know, that, this story took 33 years because I think the, these were declassified in 1996 or 1997. The House Select Committee did not do anything on this, I think. I don't think they interviewed either Master Vito or Britannic. But this is, oh, oh, I forgot one part. I forgot one part. Master Vito said that he put what was left of Kennedy's brain through a food processor. I wish I was kidding about that. I really wish I was kidding about that, but I'm not. He put it, and so that is what ended up with Kennedy's brain, at least one of the last uh, uh, pieces of evidence we have about it. And so this is a really really puzzling and frustrating story but i don't think anybody can say today with all the evidence we have that the mystery of kennedy's brain is at least one of the central keys to this whole
1: case you mean you don't think anyone can doubt that right yeah yeah i don't think
2: anybody can doubt that
1: so this this became I mean, it's it's one of those when when you look at Watergate and you look at JFK assassination, and probably with all these episodes, what makes it even more confusing is that you have these mysteries, but you have like the ways that different things came out about them over the years. So after Oliver's movie, I came across I I was looking to see if it was actually in the book of the film, but it's not uh, that I that I could find. Uh, But I. I think I did a web search, and there was an article by somebody like it was by one of those. If I remember correctly, it was by one of those guys that seemed vaguely well. They seem pretty suspiciously CIA friendly, like a uh, Tim Weiner or Michael Isakoff. And they were writing. They wrote something about the brain and how oh, it's not actually. It's Bob. I think the I think what that article argued was that like Bobby Kennedy had it or something like that. But how? When did people? Do you ever, do you do you recall how this? The story changed over time, and when we what we learned, and when we learned well, it about like the, the whereabouts thing, of the brain,
2: the whole thing <clears throat> exploded in
0: 1972. John Latimer was the first guy to go into the
2: National Archives, and his report was pretty much blase. But Cyril Wecht knew somebody at the New York Times. I think it was Fred Graham. And Fred Graham wrote an article about, well, John Latimer isn't even a forensic pathologist. He's a urologist. Why don't we get a forensic pathologist like Cyril Wecht to go in? And so this got Wecht into the archives. He became the first person to report that not only is Kennedy's brain missing, but there's certain tissue slides that were taken the night of the autopsy. And at least one of them was taken from the brain. And those are missing also. This created a really big story in the New York Times, okay, about what the heck happened to Kennedy's brain. And that was the beginning of this mystery about this whole chain of possession, you know, of Kennedy's brain and what the heck happened to it, where it is, and it's now, it's it's really remarkable, but now it's still being filled in. Now we have this story about the AFIP You know, is is this where Kennedy's brain actually ended up? Or was Kennedy's brain interred with the body? Okay. And why on earth was George Berkeley never called in to answer these questions? See, George Berkeley was not interviewed by Arlen Specter.
1: And they didn't include his his death (coughs) certificate in the Warren report, right? That's true. Which is very... How did that ever come... How did they? How did that see the light of day? If it wasn't in the Warren Report, Harold Weisberg that? got it. Uh, okay, that's quite. That's an, That's quite a. That's quite. I mean, it's very damning that they did not. They included some <laughs> the most minute, minute, tedious stuff in those twenty-six volumes, and they couldn't. They wouldn't put that in. I mean, that's pretty damning.
2: And so, Berkeley, as we tried to show in the film. Berkeley made some tantalizing comments through time on this subject, and like for example, when he was being interviewed by the JFK Library in 1964, they asked him, uh, "Do you want to state an opinion about the three bullet scenario put forth by?" And he said, "I'd rather not comment on that." Then when the House Select Committee on Assassinations was beginning to form, he, he and his lawyer wrote a letter to Richard Sprague, the first chief counsel, and, he said, and they said something like, um, my client has evidence which shows that Oswald could not have been the only person involved. Well, then Sprague got removed, all right, and then there was not even a formal deposition of Berkeley. So then, later on, when the ARB put together, Jeremy Gunn had the idea of subpoenaing the files that he had left, that Berkeley had left through his attorney's office, and they called up his daughter And she agreed to sign it. And so Jeremy got it all ready. And they were all excited about actually being to see Berkeley's files on this. He called her up for the actual signing. And guess what? She changed her mind. Okay, now they were not going to be able to see this. All right. So these things about, and Berkeley, by the way, I know someone who knows his family all the way until he died in 1989. He was being visited by the Secret Service every year. Okay.
0: Yeah.
2: All right. Now, but we also... That, know-
1: that is so... Uh, I mean, that, that whole business is so wild that they would... I mean, of course they had him under surveillance. They, had, they would have had... And they would have had the whole ARRB. <laughs> now, What we know now about the NSA and what we should probably assume in the past... That they could, that they had the ability to monitor, you know, as much telecommunications as they wanted, would have been the case then. I mean, they, of course, that they would have had him under surveillance.
2: Also, about Berkeley, Johnson promoted him to vice admiral, admiral, in order to keep him on his staff. Okay, after Kennedy was killed, because Berkeley was going to resign. And so Johnson promoted him to a vice admiral, and he stayed. He walked out of the White House when Johnson walked out of the White House in 1968. So there's another example of him being right there under the thumb of the Secret Service during the whole time he's
1: there. Promoted, even, you know. Yes.
2: So the whole story about George Berkeley, and this is one of the reasons why we spent some time on him in the film. And in the book, the book that accompanies the film, JFK Revisited, you know, is that we wanted to talk about, about Mr. Berkeley because we think he's a very, very interesting uh, kind of a witness who made these tantalizing comments, you know, two or three times, you know, and then seemed to get to the ledge and
1: then backed off the ledge at the last minute, you know, Uh as well, and then, but being a, being ignored by Sprague, and then Sprague having to resign—I mean, that could have mm-hmm. that that could he could have thought himself like, man, they're really going after this guy, and then maybe drop the matter, and then the next guy coming in, Blakey, just is not interested in that for whatever. I mean, Blakey's a weird dude because he was a RFK guy, but of course he covers it up, and then you know we all we could go on about Blakey. I don't need to get into that. Uh, let me let me get back to something that I would I would be interested to know your opinion on. What do you think Berkeley, when he's referring to this evidence, and then people were saying that people were saying for a while that he had custody of the brain, do you think the evidence is that skull fragment? Or what do you think he would have been referring to? You know,
2: nobody really knows, okay, what Berkeley meant by that.
0: But we do know two things. Randy Robertson
2: found out, and this is in the long version of the film, that there was an extra bullet found that night. In the long version of the film, before our version of the film, JFK Destiny Betrayed, Randy talks about this, that James Young, who was the assistant to Berkeley, sent two assistants out to the car, and they came in with some skull fragments, but also an extra bullet. That's one. The other thing Berkeley could be referring to is the condition of the brain that was given to him by Jim Humes, the one that was not weighed that
1: night. Yeah. Okay. All right. So do you because- think that, that 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 brain that was, you know, a good, in, largely intact brain... that. If they buried a brain, if they put a buried a brain with JFK, which still seems weird in any way, that it could have been that one?
2: Well, that's that's a very interesting question. Because you wonder. Is. okay. I left something out of this, a very important key. All right. I'm glad I'm glad this reminded me.
0: John Stringer was the official photographer. For the autopsy.
2: He testified before the ARB, before Jeremy Gunn and Douglas Horn. Jeremy Gunn never did a better deposition than he did of John Stringer, because he did something that lawyers always should follow. He asked him a series of questions to get him on the record before he showed him the evidence. So he couldn't change his story once he saw the actual photographs. So after getting him on the record to a series of questions, he then walked him into another room where the autopsy brain photographs were. I'm not exaggerating very much at all when I say that this scene when he was confronted with the photograph, I could not do, I could not write a better scene of this for a feature film. He walked in, showed him the photographs, and he said something like, didn't you say the cerebellum was shattered? That's the brain stem at the bottom and the back near the spine. And Stringer said yes. And he said, don't you see an intact cerebellum there?
0: And he said, yes. And then he says, what kind of film did you usually use? What kind of
2: film is this? And he said, this is Ansco.
0: I didn't use Ansco. I use Kodak Ektachrome. And you see these little numbers here? in the right-hand corner, that means
2: that these pictures were taken in a press pack. In other words, they were taken in series. I didn't do that. You know, I used what they call holders, duplex holders. And so Jeremy said, are you ready to deny that you took these pictures? And he said, if that's Ansco, and that's a press pack, yes, I didn't take these pictures. So as we saw in the film, well, if he didn't take the pictures, then who did? And the better question is, is why? Why did there have to be another set of pictures? Probably because these pictures betray an intact brain. See, the official pictures and the illustration in the House Select Committee show pretty much an intact brain. There's a little disruption on the right side, but that's all. And in fact, they don't even show a bullet track. They don't even show a bullet track through the brain. So if this is the brain that was buried with Kennedy, this is why people like Mike Chester said, okay, then somebody switched Kennedy's brain. you know. And this is why it was so important to get to the bottom of what the heck brain was at the AFIP and how the heck it got there. All right, so this is this is going to be an enduring mystery of 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 this case. And uh the fact that John Stringer said that no, I didn't use that film, and no, I didn't use Press Pack, that was more or less the coup de gras.
1: Yeah, that's what I, I mean. It's overwhelming the uh, the amount of chicanery all around it, all around this that aspect of it. Because when you do understand that, like uh, you know, as Clint Hill said, there's a big hole in the back of this of the president's head, then he's shot from the other side, and that's going to be something tricky to cover up. But they, you know, they do. It seems like they the, they have all they have all the resources in the world. So there's that one picture of the autopsy that shows like a, a bullet-sized hole in the back of Kennedy's head, the clean and neat as can be, that seems to be clearly doctored from, I mean, based on the accounts of so many witnesses and the guy, as you say, who felt, who was hit with ejected brain and skull so hard that he thought he'd been shot. Well, That, that, I mean, that,
2: that back of the head photograph is so controversial for the simple reason that, first of all, the back of the head looks almost untouched. But then the hair, the hair, it looks like they shampooed it. And then they combed it. It's so neat, you know. Uh, And this is not what the witnesses saw. I mean, that's a whole other issue about the hole that disappeared from the back of Kennedy's head, which the House Select Committee actually covered up and we we proved that in the film that the House Select Committee actually covered up all this witness testimony forty two witnesses between Parkland and Bethesda who said there was a blasted out hole in the back of Kennedy's head all right and the House Select Committee essentially said in their report that there might have been some witnesses at Parkland who saw this, but they only saw the body for fifteen or twenty minutes, and they were not. You know, qualified. You know that kind of stuff. You know, compared I don't to them, think,
1: I don't think you would even need to be trained to be even working <laughs> in trauma data. Like if you just yeah. if you just walk in and saw that, you'd probably remember it pretty pretty damn well.
2: Especially it's President Kennedy. You know, okay. I mean, this wasn't every day you
1: would remember that. You would remember that if it was anyone, and especially mm. the president.
2: And so they said, contrary to these witnesses. The people of Bethesda all saw an intent. Well, guess what? That was not true. All right, and so when they declassified this stuff, when they declassified this, it turned out that not only did they they drew pictures of this baseball sized hole in the back of Kennedy's skull. All right, you know, and so and then Gary Aguilar matched them up between parkland and bethesda and said look you've got like 40 witnesses who saw this blasted out part of kennedy's skull all right so how can you say that only the people at parkland saw it when it wasn't and by the way this went all the way down to the mortician who carried kennedy's body out of the morgue that night tom robinson he even saw this blasted out back of the skull so this is you know it's an incredible story. I mean, you you really couldn't even make this up, you know, if you were writing a, f- a piece of fiction. It's so bizarre about this whole thing about Kennedy's brain and the disappearing hole from the back of Kennedy's skull. And so we had Gary Aguilar on the uh, film, and I asked him, I go, well, if Kennedy's brain was substituted, why do you think something like that happened? And he said, probably because the original brain was probably too decimated for one bullet, you know? And then that makes perfect sense as to why not dissecting the brain.
1: And it, it would have also betrayed the tra- the direction. like right, not the just, directionality. It, not just it would have been in terrible shape, but it would have, you would have seen that like it had been, you know, the way that it had gone in, it would be some sort of cone where it went in, you know, narrower at the entry point and then blasts out the back. Mm-hmm. I'm assuming that just from what I've read, not that I have a lot of experience with blowing people's brains out, but you know, <laughs> I mean, it's also grim and grisly, and it's like, this is the, the Cyril Wecht cashes it perfectly. Like what's Jackie going to do? Put it on her mantelpiece. Yeah. I mean, right. this is, this is absurd. What's the deal with the, the, the other, the Harper fragment, which I believe there are photographs of. Right. And it's a big piece of the skull And didn't, haven't people, authors and art, you know, and and, and artists familiar with like anatomy, match that up to to what seems to be the back of Kennedy's head or the back of someone's skull? Well, this is
2: another interesting question. The Harper fragment was a piece of bone that was ejected from Kennedy's skull, and it was found
0: by a student named Billy Harper in Dealey Plaza.
2: Billy took it to his father, who happened to be a forensic pathologist. And he took it to two other, or maybe three other, forensic pathologists. And they took a picture of it, and they came to the conclusion that it was what they call occipital bone, which means it was from the rear of the skull. Okay, it's a
1: big. It's a big fragment, right? Is yes, it like three, it's, it's three it's, inches it's, it's or something. Really a,
2: yeah, yeah. It's it really takes up a lot of space on the back of Kennedy's head. Now, that did not get to Washington until way after the autopsy. Okay, so in other words, Humes, Boswell, and Fink, who were the three pathologists, never saw it. So this becomes a very interesting question is how could the back of the head be intact, okay, without that piece of occipital bone there, you know? And it's a, it, again, this contributes to this terrible mystery we have. Now, when it finally got there, the FBI took possession of it. And it disappeared. So all we have is the pictures that were taken in Dallas. I think the FBI, might might've taken a picture also.
1: Yeah. Now, when it's mean, so damning that they would lose the brain. Oh, and lose the Harper fragment.
0: Yeah.
1: And so wouldn't that be, I mean, this is why Jeremy Gunn he was the lead counsel for the ARRB, right? Yes. And didn't he, what didn't he eventually say later? Like, as a if I was were a lawyer in this case, I would definitely want to represent the Oswald side of things I mean yeah, a, yeah you said that. come out and say that because yeah. how could if you were prosecuting somebody, how could you possibly say it, to a defense to a defense that like i mean as you point out in the film you can't you couldn't admit the magic bullet you'd have to explain the loss of the brain you'd have to explain the loss of the harper fragment. It seems like that would be enough to get an acquittal in Podunk in a case in like yeah. Podunk, Georgia, much less to try to explain how those there's a, there's any innocent explanation for that when you're talking about the the murder, the assassination of a president. I mean, mm-hmm. of course, Gunn would say that, right? I mean. And and Jeremy Gunn saw just about everything.
2: OK, so uh, so. And, and by the way, and Jeremy Gunn is a very conservative guy, I can tell you that. OK, and so that's that's even more to the point. But. The Harper, if, if the if if Harper fragment is from the occipital part of the skull, then that clearly denotes a shot from the front. If you can blow out that big of a bone, okay, to the back of the to the to the to the rear, and because nobody knows where it ended up, nobody knows where it ended up, okay, no, with with any degree of certainty. There's differing. Stories about this, okay. But David Mantic, who's a radiation oncologist, he provided about fifteen reasons why he thinks that it's from the rear of the skull. Okay, he thinks it's about a little bit halfway up the the back of the skull. Okay, right right in that, right above there, right in that area. All right. Um. And so you're absolutely correct. In what kind of a homicide case does the brain go missing? Do tissue slides go missing? Does the Harper fragment go missing? You know, um, you could only come to the conclusion that this isn't an accident, okay? This isn't an accident. This is, you know, somebody is trying to confuse matters with all this missing evidence you know and then there's just what we started with today you know what the heck was that to afip you know what was kennedy's brain really at the afip and and why
1: okay why was it there you know very very bizarre i mean if you wrote that as a law and order Plot line with a the brain gets lost at one point, and then it gets revealed that there's a skull fragment and it gets lost. And it would be, it probably wouldn't even make it into the show. It would be bad writing. It would be like, no, nah, that's cheap. yeah, it's, that's too over the top, too implausible. They're not that ham fisted, you know. <laughs> that's just the the case is full of things like that. We should get into this other article, we'll spend less time on this, but I think it's definitely worth looking at because it's something that gets dis- that is being discussed by people, uh, a number of people, especially because of the RFK Jr. campaign, have been revisiting the history of the Cold War and the history of the Kennedy administration and talking about Martin Lu- the relationship between Martin Luther King and the Kennedys. Um, and in, in particular, so your new article is Hoover versus King, the ARRB documents. Um, what what prompted you to write this uh, this new article? There's new material that you uh, have... Yeah, Gary
2: Majewski, Majewski is one of the very few people who's actually going through the ARB documents as they're being declassified. And he sent me a package, and he said, Jim, if you can believe it, there's some interesting things there about King because I don't know why they're declassifying this with the ARB, but they are, all right? And so he sent me the packet. And by the way, I, and I have it right here on my desk because I just finished your article a few days ago. you know. And so I went through it. And I said, this is really kind of interesting, okay? And so what I did is I combined it with some traditional stuff that's already been out there to show just how bad uh this battle was between well first it started out between Hoover and King it then expanded you know much further than that okay once bobby kennedy passed on or rather once bobby kennedy left the attorney general's office there really wasn't a heck of a lot to rein in hoover And so this expanded, as we all know, to civil rights groups in general, especially towards the end, to black nationalist groups. All right. But the article itself is mainly
0: about King. All right. And what what happened here is that as a civil
2: rights battle heated up, the... SCLC, Southern Christian Leadership Conference, the group that was run by King, became outspoken about what the FBI was and was not doing to protect civil rights workers in the field. All right. And this, of course, Jagger Hoover was nothing if not sensitive to criticism of the Bureau, all right? And so King himself and the SCLC began to criticize whether or not the FBI was really trying to protect civil rights workers or if they were really more in cahoots with these southern redneck policemen and state troopers. And to put it mildly, this did not go over very well, you know, with King and Clyde Tolson, his second in command, and Carter Deloach, his third in command. So they there was a memo I think in 1961, where which one FBI agent wrote, and at the bottom of the memo it says something like. King has not been under investigation. Hoover underlined that sentence, and then in his scrawl in the margin said, why not? Okay. And this began a concentrated investigation of King.
1: But th- yeah. This marks more of just an escalation, right? Because even we yes. were writing, why not? But they had been, and they'd been yes. doing everything. No, no, no. no, no. There's, the there's, no not-
2: there's no doubt no. that secretly, that they had. Well, let's put it this way: they had broken into Levison's house, I think, in 1959 or 1960. Harris Wolford, and as we'll get to Levison later, okay. And they had been. William Sullivan, who was in the FBI, said they had been tapping King's phone since 1959, okay? You know, secretly, all right? And so this was really more or less a pretext, okay, to escalate this war between Hoover and King, all right? So now Hoover began to rely on his old standby which was smearing people as being Reds. You couldn't do that with King, though, because King wasn't a communist. And there was no history of him going to any communist meetings or people seeing him at these meetings or him advocating things like Lenin or Marx you know yeah, or, if you
1: read if you read those the things he was saying in the 50s and and uh, up to you know up to the civil rights bill being passed he's very much a guy who see to me it seems like he's trying to ingratiate himself with the white liberal establishment like in his like to to the point that i kind of i mean i understand why you would do it because you have to deal with political reality and so he had to but he he definitely was not communist i'm just sort of emphasizing yes, that he yes. was, he went out of his way to try to demonstrate that he was a good liberal who believed in the American way and not a communist uh, during the Civil Rights Well, you know, that's
2: the way he got donations. Yeah. Okay, that's the way people contributed to the SCLC. All right, you had these rich white liberals, okay, and they were giving him money, and so you don't bite off the hand that's feeding you, all right? And so that didn't really do very much for Hoover's cause. So he did the next, went to the next thing, which was we'll smear him with cohorts who might have been in the CP. Yeah. Well, they centered on two guys, Jack O'Dell and Stanley Levison, all right? Jack O'Dell had been associated with communist causes, but... He broke it off in the 1950s, had not been. He's been working for the SCLC in the New York office and then the Atlanta office and the Albany, Georgia office. Stanley Levinson was a wealthy lawyer, a wealthy Jewish lawyer in New York City. And Levinson always maintained that I have never been any kind of member of the Communist Party throughout my life, all right? None, never happened, etc. Well, Hoover just couldn't stand by that. And so he now accused Levison. See, this, this is always a technique that Hoover would use. Well, see, he's not a member of the Communist Party because he's a KGB secret agent. He's an undercover secret agent in the Communist Party. <laughs> yeah. Now, and I can't show you the evidence because I'll be betraying a, a, a
1: source that I can't afford to blow on this information. Yeah, this is basically exactly what they did with RussiaGate. They just said, "Oh, he's a guy. He's a Russian <laughs> agent. We can't show you the information because that would be exposing sources and methods." But just trust us. He's totally a Russian agent. Uh and so and so this is what
2: he did with Levison. All right. And so the Kennedys were caught between a rock and a
0: hard place. All right? Because nobody and I and I
2: worked on this for a long time so and I know this very, very, very well, and I know it to be a fact. JFK did more for civil rights in three years than Roosevelt, Truman, and Eisenhower did in three decades. And this mythology that it didn't start until Birmingham is absolute hogwash. The very night Kennedy was inaugurated, he called up Douglas Dillon as Secretary of the Treasury, and he said, why were there no black faces in that Coast Guard parade today? And Dylan said, I don't know. And Kennedy says, find out, okay? And so Dylan found out that there were no black students at the Coast Guard Academy, all right? And so at the first cabinet meeting, Kennedy then asked, each cabinet chief to bring an accounting of how many people of color are in their department to the next meeting. And so they did. And Kennedy was shocked. A, because they were so few, and B, because they were all down at the lower rung, either in clerical duties or custodial duties. All right? And so... This is what caused him to sign the first affirmative action law ever in the United States. I think that was in March of 1961. So I don't see how you can say that he was delaying things when he signs affirmative action order two months after he's in office. Okay?
1: You know? So, it wasn't, weren't the Kennedys, I mean, the Kennedys were very close to Harry Belafonte. Yes. And they were, and, and Belafonte credits the Kennedys. I mean, Belafonte is the guy who was known for financing a lot of the civil rights movement, right? But he yes. also, weren't the Kennedys encouraging all of this? And, I mean, they, they it was more than just their role as, um, you know, the president at the time and attorney general. I mean, they did more than that.
2: Yes. Yes, they did. uh, That's absolutely true. Harry Belafonte was very close friends with Bobby Kennedy, okay, and he backed uh, exactly the things that Bobby Kennedy encouraged Bobby to go even further and backed up what he was doing up to that time. All right, now let me just close out that story because Kennedy expanded the affirmative action order, okay? The first affirmative action order was only for the government. Kenny then signed a second one that said, I now will expand affirmative action to all businesses who are under contract with the United States government. Now that was really a big step because now it meant that, for example, if you were a textile factory in North Carolina, and you were making uniforms for the Navy, okay? This means you had to hire African-American people to work there. And so there was a reporter who went down to North Carolina and interviewed one of the managers at a textile factory, and she noticed that there were black Americans working on the grounds. And she said, well, when did this happen? And the guy goes, last year. And he goes, why? And he goes, well, either we do it or we close our doors. Okay, we're not going to get any more contracts anymore. Okay. Yeah. So that's why, that's why it happened. All right. And so that's just one of the things he did. I did a whole four-part series on this for Kennedy's and King. Okay. And so what happened is that Levison called up King. And he said, Hoover's starting to put pressure on you, right? And he goes, yes. And he goes, do whatever you think you have to do. So King put Odell on hiatus, okay? He forced his resignation while they did an investigation, okay? And he decided that Odell had to go, all right? And so that's what happened in that case.
0: Levison said, look, JFK and RFK have essentially sided with you. They've got a lot on the table here. They cannot,
2: whether it's a fake scandal or whether it's a real scandal, okay, they, not, they cannot gamble with this. All right. And so I will understand if you have to freeze me out. And so when JFK met with King, I think this was in June of 1963, at the White House. He asked him to go outside to take a walk in the Rose Garden. And King later said, I wonder if Hoover has his phone tapped also, you know, (laughs) or his room's bugged. Maybe that's why he wanted to go outside. And so he warned him. He said, you know, they have you under surveillance, okay? And you know, they're going after this Odell guy and this Levison guy. And he said, we've tied our wagon to your horse, okay? If you go down, we go down all right, so I think you should get rid of them, all right, and he said, well, I'd like to see the evidence first, and JFK said that uh, Burke Marshall will show that to you. Burke Marshall was the guy who was running the civil rights program for Kennedy, and so Burke Marshall met Andrew Young, uh, I think it was in New Orleans, when he was trying a case, but Young said the problem was that Burke was just telling him the stuff that Hoover had said. I I didn't see any evidence. And so I concluded, and Martin Luther King concluded, that this was intimidation by the FBI, which it likely was. All right? But Levison said, look, we need the Kennedys. All right? So you can cut off direct communication with me and we can go through Clarence Jones, who was a lawyer who worked, you know, for the SCLC, all right? And so as a result of this, JFK became the first white politician to endorse the march on Washington in July. And he made a point of saying that there is no communist infiltration that we've been able to, uh, to detect okay and bobby kennedy wrote a letter to a couple senators in which he said more or less the same thing he, he even said you know it's remarkable in the face of all the real injustices that the communists have been able to make almost no progress in the civil rights movement well that drove hoover up the wall okay when 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 he wrote those letters to those senators you know he exploded all right, uh, how can you make such a declarative definitive statement when you don't even have King's phone tapped okay and then he then he pulled out what he thought was his ace, and he said, I know for sure that King is still communicating with Levison now, how he can know that for sure, you know, but he said he but he said Yes, he is. And so, as William Sullivan said, Bobby Kennedy had refused this at least three times. Okay. All right. Finally, in October, he buckled and he said, look, I will okay a phone tap for 30 days. Okay. And if nothing comes up, that's it. Okay. And I don't want to hear any more about this. All right, and so the problem with that—the problem with that—is that RFK did this in late October of 1963, and we all know what happened a month later. Okay, and so what happened is that once Kennedy was killed, Hoover ripped out Bobby Kennedy's private line into his office, and that was it. And Bobby Kennedy even said, words of the effect, these guys don't work for me anymore. Okay. And we all know that Johnson had a rather close relationship with Hoover. You know, uh, they were buddy-buddy. And contrary to proper belief, to uh, conventional belief,
0: it wasn't really the Vietnam War that drove a wedge between
2: uh johnson and king in my article king started because what happened is after rfk was killed Hoover expanded the wiretaps to include hotels and motels that king was
1: you mean after jfk was killed
2: yes yeah excuse me thank you uh and so this is where he said that he had evidence of the king was flandering. Flan- okay. He offered this to various journalists, like Ben Bradley. Okay. There was another guy, uh, Eddington from the Atlanta Constitution. Okay. They did not want to hear it. And in fact, when Johnson heard that Bradley did not want to hear it, You know, he recommended against cooperating with Bradley anymore in the future because obviously Johnson uh, was trying to encourage this kind of thing. And so what finally happened in the summer, or excuse me, I think it was the fall of 1964, King had won Times Man of the Year Award at the end of 1963. And this was, Hoover wrote a memo on a UPI story saying words of the effect. They really had to dig into the trash can to come up with this. But then it was announced that the Nobel Committee was going to honor King with its peace prize in the upcoming year. And Hoover just went nuts on this one. Okay. He couldn't believe it. Here was Martin Luther King, age 35, who was going to be the youngest recipient of the Nobel Peace Prize ever, which included $55,000, you know, which today would be like a half a million. All right. And so he now went on a rampage, okay, both domestically and in the foreign field. In the foreign field, he got in contact with intelligence agencies and ambassadors abroad, asking them not to host King if there's any attempt by one of his representatives to become any kind of guest of honor while traveling to Oslo, Norway. Okay? He got in contact with the British Denmark, Sweden, and I think one other country, okay, to make sure that there was not a warm and welcome uh, committee waiting for King at the airport. And if you can believe it, Roger Hollis, who was the head of MI5, which is kind of the British equivalent of uh, the FBI, he actually took this seriously and he presented this evidence to the Prime Minister at the time, all right? And he Bayard Rustin was their advance man on his trip. He had agents applied to Bayard Rustin, following him anywhere he went, okay? And he even knew who Bayard Rustin was using To set up a contact with the Prime Minister. All right. And these messages went back and forth. You know, from London to the FBI. All right. And so Hoover did everything he could to stop King's European trip from being a success. And these are the new documents that Gary Majewski got me. I was not aware of these specifics up until that time. And obviously everyone knows about the letter sent to the Atlanta office of the SCLC, along with a copy of the tape, these supposed tapes that uh, Hoover had uh, taken from some of King's hotel rooms. And in that letter, he, which I think was written by Sullivan, all right, he said words of the effect, King, you know you're a fraud. You know you're not who you think you are. Soon the world will know. Okay. And all this cooperation you're getting from Protestants, Catholics, and Jews will soon evaporate. You know what's in store for you. You know there's only one way out. And I advise you to do it by, in the next 34 days. I think the 34-day thing was for christmas that they were threatening to get this into the media uh for christmas okay and king was you know very and and king and young once they read this and they heard the tape they knew it was hoover okay only he could do something like this <coughs> and king was very very much discouraged you know he said, they're trying to break me, you know, which of course, that's what they were trying to do, all right? All right, and so this accompanied this overseas campaign that Hoover was using at the same time. You know, it, it, when you look back at it, it's really kind of crazy, you know, that, that this was allowed to happen, and this just shows you just how powerful, you know, Hoover was. You know, as far as this domestic scene, and in this, what we're talking about now, is in the foreign field. I mean, an FBI director influencing American representatives abroad uh, about King's visit there. You know, yeah, I they,
1: mean, they did that. They did that to. I mean, that was the thing with Malcolm X too. There's that one CIA document where someone submits an inquiry to the CIA saying, like. Um, Hey, you know Malcolm X is going around saying a lot of bad things about our foreign policy. Do you think uh, maybe we could look into uh, maybe assassinating him? (laughs) (laughs) Was it really that clear? Uh, It does. It does say like, as as I recall, it it does say that it 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 brings up assassination in a way that like it's clearly that's what it's referring to. I should Uh, we should try to. I think that we'll in the coming months uh, in the next year something maybe we'll try to. I'll try to hunt that down. At some point because it's a it's a really key uh it's one of the more damning documents you don't really have that many of those you just sort of assume that they usually whisper about these things but then there's that document where they do it but yeah that they were that's 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 the ironic thing about all of this stuff with mlk and hoover and you can think about the malcolm x thing too and why it was so important is that there's a book by a, a historian like an academic historian called uh, Cold War Civil Rights. And her name is Mary, I think it's Mary Dujak, but it's spelled weird, like with a Z, because it's like one of those Polish names or something, where they just put a Z in somewhere for no reason. But it, anyway, the, uh, the thesis of the book is that, and I think she makes the case very well, helps to explain why there was more so much support for civil rights, is that the U.S. was really on a flat-footed in the developing world as people went around having with like Paul Robeson's group, you know, that their petition to the U.N. We charge genocide, uh, the crime of government against the American Negro, I think was the subtitle. And it was basically saying the U.S., you know, talking about Jim Crow and lynchings and all these things. And people, even people like Alan Dulles were vaguely sympathetic, not, not let's say sympathetic, because that I don't believe they were really sympathetic. They tactically supported civil rights for this reason, that it was a really bad look for the U.S., and the mm-hmm. whole U.S. political economy no longer depended on slaves picking cotton or anything like that. Like the South was just an embarrassment and a backwater for the for the U.S. because they are, they were more worried about the global empire. So the, the the pinnacle of the U.S. establishment didn't obviously didn't care about the well-being of black people in the U.S. But they knew that for their plan for like you know global hegemony that civil rights was a was a bad look. And so this is this is the tightrope that they're they're trying to walk and so mlk is the kind of the beneficiary of this i think it helps to us to understand why the the media in the north or i mean the 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 national media gave good coverage to this it's that they were the powers that be were sympathetic to civil rights as long as it went up to political rights but once mlk starts saying why are you spending all this money on the war when you could when like look at the situation of black people he said i don't want to integrate into a burning house but that's what he did well that's that's essentially what he said
2: okay when there's a film called uh king in the wilderness yeah it's good in which uh he's talking to sandra van oker uh right before they're doing an interview and this is i think during the watts riots okay and uh which were massive and incredible all right and sandra van oker asks him about didn't you make a speech a couple of years ago called I have a dream and didn't that civil rights bill pass? What happened? And he goes, and King said, words of the effect. Well, my dream became a nightmare. Okay. (laughs) As you can see it all around you. Okay. (laughs) You know,
1: if you recall it did and they, you know what it's a couple months later and it's the, the Kennedy assassination in vietnam it's a, it, it did it did become a nightmare if you recall the watch riots began
2: a almost an annual summer ritual in which literally dozens of cities okay would go up in flames you know culminating in newark and detroit which i think were the two biggest ones where you literally had scores of people killed. You had, you know, dozens of square miles. You had hundreds of buildings, you know. Uh, and it goes back to, I think, the point that you were talking about and Bobby Kennedy was talking about. And Bobby
0: Kennedy said, it's one thing to give a black man the right
2: to walk into a hotel and restaurant, it's another thing to give him the money to rent a room and buy a meal at that hotel and restaurant. <laughs> okay? And that's what we're gonna be facing in the north. All right.
1: And so yeah. this this was the problem. Yeah, and because the the Kennedys, you know, with affirmative action, it, affirmative action wasn't you know that the kennedys didn't mean for this to be the, the end all be all solution it's a temporary thing to say like holy you know holy cow there's one really glaring terrible problem that we can change with a stroke of a pen but we're also going to you know we're going to have these poverty programs and we're going to do other things to to change the situation so that it's not this bad so that it doesn't always recover, re- require uh, you know over the top kind of de- deliberate jury rigging of things to get some kind of outcome but that, that part of it, you know, Kennedy saying, or MLK saying, I didn't, we, I didn't want to integrate into a burning house, et cetera. I mean, this is really the, the heart of it because now what they've really done is they abandoned that idea. They abandoned the war on the war, the evil triplets that MLK was talking about and RFK had a plan, a campaign on the same sort of premise dealing with those same three issues, but they just murder those guys. And then what, what's, what, all, what is left of that program? I mean, largely, They've gotten rid of the Voting Rights Act. So what's really left is like a a, firma, a, a kind of affirmative action on steroids. Like so you see on TV there are a lot of like black spokesmen for the Democrats and in corporate media and elsewhere. And they it, it's a kind of tokenism and they have they're basically like reporting from the burning house and they're telling you that it's fine and just keep voting for these corporate <laughs> democrats because they are like they have been, they have been given the money to go into any Hotel in America and whatever, you know, and it's it's just it has become a nightmare like that. King was so prophetic in this and it is absolutely tied to these assassinations. And uh, it's an important part of the story. And it really bothers me that people are uh, distorting what the Kennedys are and the relationship between Kennedys and MLK. I mean, the fact that it was RFK who told MLK to do the Poor People's March. And the MLK's yeah. family thinks that that's precisely why they murdered him. I mean, that's something that everybody should know. That, that's, a, that's something you have to take into account. Well, when you, try to you know, when I things.
2: saw Christopher Hedges, okay, on one of those uh, podcasts going off about Bobby Kennedy hated Martin Luther King, I did a column on that for Kennedy's and King. I thought that was so outrageous. You know, I mean, please, can he really be that stupid? You know, I mean, can Christopher Hedges really be that stupid, or is he that much of a doctrinaire liberal? You know, who feels he has to say this? You know, he's I mean, a,
1: he's a left. He's kind of a leftist, like a Chomskyite leftist. If you if it oh, he is. It. Yeah, his, a lot of his stuff is very good on certain issues. He, because his overall analysis of the criminality of the state and of the U.S. empire and how it's totally lawless. He actually says a lot of the same things that I would do. But then on these big issues, he's always, you know, uh, uh, he he doesn't go there. He just he won't go there. He takes the Chomsky line. I I would guess that he's not even really aware of the counter arguments, uh, the sort of left leaning counter arguments that you're putting out here about this, because I don't know him to normally go around saying things that are totally erroneous like this. It's just a strange thing, but he's totally he's totally, um, you know, Uh, out of line with and egregious with what he says about these things.
2: Yeah, see, Kennedy backed the march on Washington. Okay, and then once he made the announcement, I think that was July the 17th, that we're going to be backing the march on Washington, he called in Bobby, and he said, I'm putting you in charge of this. Okay, and and, uh, everything has to go off like clockwork. Because if it doesn't, our enemies will use this to tar us, yeah. okay? And so Bobby— and that was a
1: huge—that was a big risk. I mean, his, yes. his, his yeah. re-election depends on right. the South. The South, They're a part of his constituency. That is not a—I don't know of any other act by a U.S. president where, a, where they basically throw a, a big part of their constituency. You know, they basically say, you know, sorry, but we're, I, I can't— I can't discuss this. I'm going to have to throw you under the bus. And Bobby Kennedy resigned while JFK was in
2: Texas. He wrote a letter of resignation because he said, if you keep me on, you're going to lose the entire South because of this stand we've taken on civil rights. And I've been your point man on civil rights. So they're going to go after me to get to you. Okay. All right. So this is how they understood this issue that it had the potential to bring them down okay and that's why bobby wrote that letter now of course jfk never got it okay because he never came back from dallas all right so i don't know how he would have reacted to it you know but but that's in uh uh the revolution of robert kennedy which is one of the best books recently about Bobby Kennedy
1: and, and JFK was wanted. JFK offered, and I think even wanted to speak at the March on Washington, isn't that right? But then yeah, they there, didn't there, want him. Wasn't there. it Rustin? Rustin and other people said, like, this actually should be the Black Man's Hour, right? You know, more or less, right? Which is That's you know, why I, he didn't I, I speak know, there. Understand that. they didn't want him because they yeah.
2: thought that he would overshadow, you yeah. know, the other speakers that they had that and day.
1: And he was, he was, he was fine with that, right? I mean, he, he, yes, right. He would have done it, but then they yeah. said, this is. Should be the black man's hour. And he like was like, okay, and then made sure he and Bobby made sure and Walter Ruther, right? Walter Ruther uh, was
2: one of the speakers.
1: And then Walter Ruther and JFK and Bobby and Jack would all be dead before too long. (laughs) Right.
2: Right. And uh and a lot of people, a lot of people believe that the march on Washington was probably the high point of American liberalism, you know, in that era. In fact, Ralph Albernathy said words of the effect, it was the greatest day of his life, okay, you know. And and it was really, really a triumph, you know, of that era of the coming together, you know, of these liberal forces, you know, to make a, a momentous event. But let's not forget, it took a year to pass the civil rights bill. All right. And JFK, Richard Russell, who was, of course, against it. JFK in, I think, I think it was August or September of 1963. Brought in group after group after group from every professional association, in the United States priests doctors lawyers etc this went on for a month okay and him and johnson would meet with each group and he would encourage them to go back to where they came from and please get behind the civil rights bill russell later said when the civil rights bill was about to pass he said, you know something, I think we could have beat this thing, but when Kennedy started bringing in all those Protestant and Lutheran and Methodist ministers and all these uh, professional people, that's kind of spelled the end, you know, <laughs> of how we could have beaten this thing, all right, and so that's what, see, there's this whole mythology, that Johnson is a guy who... Uh, that's not true. It was Bobby Kennedy who stayed on. He wanted to retire, okay, after his brother was killed. But he stayed on to pass the Civil Rights Bill. It was him, Hubert Humphrey, and Thomas Kuchel, who was a Republican senator from California. Uh, there's a good book on this called The Bill of the Century, okay? and. It was those three guys most responsible for
1: passing the civil rights bill. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, Johnson was not an especially, I mean, I think he did by the end feel that this was something important to do historically. So I, I don't, I don't think he was purely a phony, you know, like a, like a segregationist at heart. I mean, it seems like he did have some desire to deal with domestic poverty but was obviously racked over his kind of terrible anti-communism and and, and so on and, and you know, mm-hmm. so his foreign policy is a total disaster and because of his macho Texan tough guy anti-communism and so on he was basically you know totally malleable for the national security people and the Wall Street people that run CIA and everything else but you know the Kennedys for the Civil Rights Bill, I think, are and obviously Martin Luther King. You know most of all uh, credit for that whole that whole thing. And it's uh, you know it's a real crisis. It's a tragedy that the way that American politics uh, was altered its trajectory because it, the the Civil Rights Act and the you know the War on Poverty these should have been the beginning of a, a process of dealing with the great. Atrocities and injustices of U.S. history, instead of a movement back into, you know, a kind of right-wing uh, general state of things in the United States, which is what happens in the years uh, following JFK, really consolidated with Ronald Reagan in 1980, and then we have net never—it's been uh, a kind of right-wing nightmare ever since. Yes, absolutely. You know, that's why um,
2: I criticized. Um, What's that guy? Oh, Rick Perlstein. Rick Perlstein wrote this four-volume set on the Rise of the Right from Goldwater, which I think that was called The Gathering Storm, you know, all the way up to uh, Reagan. Reagan's administration. I think he called that The Invisible Bridge. Okay. And I said online... How can anybody write a book about the rise of the right in the United States and leave out the conspiracies to murder JFK, Malcolm X, King, and Bobby Kennedy? Because it doesn't happen without the elimination of those guys. And I said, it's sort of like, you know, that question, well, Mrs. Lincoln, besides the shooting how did you
1: like to play okay <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> all right you know yeah I mean that I always find I find that genre of liberal commentary where they try to where they try to explain why the right has been so triumphant and what what the left might be able to do and when they when they say like we need our own set of think tanks and so on but like we need our own media it's like Okay, the right what the right has is all the money in the world and and their mission is to make sure they they keep it and get more of it. And they also, when it comes down to it, can just murder people and get away with it. So maybe those factors, you want to you want to write all of these things about like, oh, if only we did this, if only we did that. Maybe it's more straightforward than that. They can get away. They can rig everything with all the money in the world. And if they can't, if that somehow fails, they can just murder people and then lie about it forever, and nobody will do anything about it. That—that's a—that's a source of of power, and, and then you can understand why they would be able to stay in charge. It's not like, it's not as mysterious as as. But don't, but, but
2: don't 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 forget Marcos Melitzas.
1: <laughs> oh, oh yeah, he's our secret weapon, right? Secret weapon on the left i mean that was what they thought they were like we need our own left-wing media and then they yeah. it's people like this and then you find out like gosh they sort of they pull a lot of punches here and there and then oh well they were trained by the cia <laughs> i guess i guess that makes sense that's where All we're right. at okay uh, jim where, where what else do you have on the horizon anything else you want our our uh viewers to know about i'll probably make this a public episode to try to promote your uh the, the website and such. But okay, what else do you have um, going on? we
2: have uh, we have Andrew Eiler who is coming out with another installment about the fate of the JFK Act. Okay, which was the JFK Records Collection Act of 1992, which is being adjudicated up in North Carolina right now, and he's going to have a report on uh, the judges Seaborg his his preliminary decision. He's an attorney up in Canada who's very, very good at this. Also, I think I'm going to be part of an anthology book with Andrew and Mark Adamchick and uh, Paul Blow and Mark Crumpton that's coming out for the 60th. It's called The Chokeholds. Okay. And that is going to be about 10 certain evidentiary points which, with the results of the ARB, are pretty much inarguable, all right? I'm also going to be doing an article for my site about Mark Shaw, okay? Um, Mark Shaw is a writer who, uh, don't ask me why, they put him on coast-to-coast a lot, you know? And he's one of these guys who thinks Marcelo did it. And that uh, RFK and JFK were screwing around with Marilyn Monroe, you know, and uh, it was really RFK who was behind really crazy stuff. So I'm going to be going ahead and doing an article on him. So those are some of the upcoming things you're going to see at Kennedy's and King.com.
1: Very good. Jim DiGeno, thank you so much for joining us. again. My pleasure, Aaron. Thank you. to Dana Chavaria for producing this episode and to Mock Orange for providing the music. This episode is public, but you can find a whole lot more material in this vein by subscribing to the American Exception podcast on Patreon. It's always great to have Jim Eugenio join us again. Uh, Links to the articles we discussed are in the show notes and I would also suggest that you check out his latest publication, the book version of JFK Revisited. Jim has an encyclopedic knowledge of the JFK case. I'm really happy that he's out there doing what he does and that we could bring him on today. I appreciate how with no prep or anything, he can just bust out with arcane side stories like he did with the Harper fragment. Jim is a guy who has a calling, calling to chase the light.
0: Told by you When the comfort seems invaded People turn and run away When the comfort seems invaded People turn and run away